at John chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 18. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text for the, the passage printed in your, your worship guide. Uh, we have been going through a series, uh, really just encounters with Jesus. Uh, various people encountering who Jesus is and experiencing uh, the restoration, the redemption that he gives. And today is going to be our last passage that we're going to be looking at here. And it's, uh, in one sense, fitting because it is uh, um, the resurrected Jesus that uh, Mary Magdalene is going to have with him. And so before we get to the reading, uh, let's first pray that God would uh, bless his word and that we'd be able to better understand and listen in these times. Lord God, we do... I come before your word, and we need your spirit to open it up to us so that we can understand. We want to hear. Please give us ears to hear. Give us an open heart to hear what you have to say. If there are, is anything in here that might cause us to throw up a shield or barriers or, or look the other way, Lord, soften those. Allow us to come with gladness. Allow us to see not just words about Jesus here on a page, but allow us to see Jesus for who he is. I pray that we might come away with a deeper belief and trust in who he says he is than we had before. We pray this in his name. Amen. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. This is the word of God. Now on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, 
to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Amen. A person wakes up one morning to find that everything that they've known and everything that they've banked on is gone. Every dream that they've had is now shattered. Every good thing that they've taken delight in is now taken away. Only to to, to now be replaced by fear and anxiety of the unknown. And all this person can do is weep at the despair which suddenly fills their lives as they ask themselves, how can I ever go back? Is this the new normal? You could insert all sorts of names that would fit into that brief description. Notable individuals, countless people suffering in anonymity, perhaps even yourself. But I'm referring to Mary Magdalene here. We don't know a whole lot about Mary Magdalene. Unfortunately, there have been too many apocryphal tales that have tried to fill in the details. But we do know that she was a firmly devoted follower of Jesus. We know that not only from here, but also from the other gospel accounts. Mark and Luke both note that she followed Jesus closely because he had delivered her from the clutches of seven, de- seven demons which were inside her. And she is specifically mentioned then in the same breath as the other 12 disciples. And her whole life then since has revolved around Jesus. She has staked everything that she had, all of her life, all of her hopes, all of her dreams, everything around him. And then she sees it all crashing down as he was betrayed and put upon the cross. Nearly everyone else leaves Jesus as he's hanging bloody and naked, but Mary is one of the very few that stuck around and witnessed the horror. Her Lord, her Master, Her deliverer has just been cruelly murdered. And now it looks like every shred of her hope and joy has been killed with him. Where is she to go from here? How is she to pick up the pieces then and move ahead with her life? What about the demons which oppressed her? Is there any guarantee that she can keep them at bay now that her her rescuer seems to be gone? Mary Magdalene is left with so many unanswered questions in the face of what seems to be an uncertain future. And there's a struggle that we see her going through as she approaches the tomb that morning and realizes that it's empty. It's a struggle to believe. This should have been a moment of joy. But at first, though, all she can do is continue to weep as she works through her own unbelief. Because it can be difficult to believe when hope seems uncertain or when the path going forward is clouded, when darkness presses in and when our world is shattered, it can obscure our own trust or cause us to second guess what's real. And we ought to be honest with that. The experience of faith sometimes involves deep trials which require us to wrestle with God and wrestle with his trustworthiness. There are some moments where we might feel where God's presence is walking along with us the whole day. And there might be other times when all we can do is echo the words of Psalm 88, darkness has become my only companion. And Mary comes to the tomb in darkness, as it says in verse 1, which is going to be her own context for struggling to believe. A literal darkness as it's early, as she comes in the morning before dawn. But that early morning darkness, though, is also a symbol of how she comes. She feels the darkness of her life as the weights 
of the events from the previous days here has borne upon her. But she also comes in the darkness of her understanding. She comes unable to initially see the hope that is set right before her. And one of the beautiful things, though, about the Gospel of John is how he weaves all these various threads throughout his whole narrative, and then he ties them all up there in the end. And John 1 begins with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it continues, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It will take Jesus as the word of God speaking into Mary's darkness to shine forth light. To give her an understanding and hope. Because the darkness has not overcome the light, nor will it overcome her as Jesus sends forth his bright, piercing rays. And each of the words that Jesus speaks to Mary serve to challenge her unbelief and lead her gently through her wrestling in the darkness, eventually then to bring her into hope anew. And we're going to frame everything this morning around those four statements that Jesus makes. The first one is in verse 15. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? What's the whole context of these words? Well, Mary comes to the tomb in darkness. She sees the stone removed from the entrance. And in her mind, there's only a couple of things that that could be. First is grave robbers, which was common in those days. Grave robbers coming to pillage or to desecrate the tomb. And especially if someone's so high profile like Jesus. Or perhaps maybe the best case scenario in that moment would be the gardeners move the body to some unknown location for whatever reason. But either way, though, whichever it is, this is, in her mind, yet one more stressor that's added to the past 48 hours. Not only was her master crucified, but now his body's gone. The memorial that she had to his remembrance, the last thing that she had of Jesus is no more. You can see why after Peter and John leave the tomb to go back to the others, why Mary stands behind weeping. Because it's just one more thing. It's another thing to remind her of the darkness. Except there's every indication of hope here, too. There's something different. John saw the linen cloths which wrapped Jesus' body, and they're all still there and intact. And the face shroud that covered his head was neatly rolled up next to them. This isn't a scene of grave robbery. It's not a scene of moving a body. It's almost like his body passed through the clothes and then removed that shroud, rolled it up because there was no use for it, and set it down there. And then when Mary takes a look a little bit later, there are two angels that are sitting there. Now, angels in the Bible don't just happen all the time. They show up at at, at important times, not just random moments. When they appear, it means something. And and when they they talk to her even, it's these same words that Jesus would first greet her with is what they say. Why are you weeping? Words are, are almost like a mild rebuke. It's not, not harsh, not in that way, but a gentle question posed to her. Why are you weeping? Don't you see that there's no reason to cry? At least not tears of sorrow. Do you see everything and do you understand what has just happened here? It's resurrection. He's alive. There's no reason to weep. 
And then as Jesus speaks, just as the angels did, he's calling her to look around at everything and to make an honest evaluation. Right? John entered the tomb and it says in verse 9, he believed. In his mind, there's only one ex- explanation that could fit. Jesus is no longer dead. Admittedly, that's not an easy explanation. It's perhaps not the first one that would come to mind. But these people weren't any different than, than we are. Just because we are, are modern people who live in a scientific age doesn't mean that, that uh, we are um, any more enlightened on, on thinking about things than they were. People were, back then were skeptics just the same. People also throughout the Bible thought, oh, resurrection, that thing doesn't happen. It's not like people went around believing that, that others just sprang back to life. But no, John looks at the scene and he sees that it answers all the questions. It ticks all the boxes. And this was even before then that they fully understood how from the Old Testament, the resurrection of their Savior was what they should have been expecting this whole time. And then the presence of the angel sitting there, that's the final piece of the puzzle. The two angels sitting there bearing witness to the idea that the power of God was active and at work. That the Spirit of God came and filled this place of death to bring life. The stench of death and futility was transformed into the sweet aroma now of life and of flourishing. Why are you weeping? The sign of God's power, coupled with the neatly arranged grave clothes, could only point to one thing. Resurrection. Jesus is getting her to focus not upon the darkness which she's experienced over the past hours, but the light, though, which is now shining forth. It takes the words of Jesus to draw our eyes from our own darkness that we inhabit and to reconsider the significance of his life for us. Something new is happening here. Verse 1 says that specifically this was the first day of the week. It's hinting at something. There's something new that has happened. In the beginning, God created everything and was described as a week, working for six days, resting on the seventh. The Bible says that he created all things good, yet we don't experience it as good because of the ruin which came upon everything because of Adam's fall. And death, disobedience from from the highest level down to the most personal way, it infects everything. And Mary stands at the tomb weeping because of that. You and I have lives that are touched by darkness and chaos because of that. But the first day of the week here at the empty tomb, this is the beginning of a new week. Not a week of creation, a week of recreation. A week where glory is being restored, where death is being beaten back by resurrection and life. If the first creation was, was created by the word of God being spoken into the void and taming the darkness with light, then this is the beginning of recreation where the word of God incarnate speaks into the darkness which is covering Mary and covering the world to announce victory and its passing. So this isn't just the first day of the week. This is the first day of a new era of hope. Mary comes in the darkness, but the light was just beginning to dawn. It's Jesus himself standing there before Mary, who is the beginning of this hope. He's just conquered death. Why are you weeping? Revelation 21 looks ahead to the coming day of glory when all that is dark and fallen passes away. 
when God and his people will dwell together forever. And, he, and it says there that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. See, Jesus can ask Mary why she's weeping. Because he knows that the resurrection has just made true those words from Revelation 21. Friends, how often do we live as if the resurrection is not only true, but real? How often do we live as if the resurrection is not only true, but it's also real? There's a difference between something that's true and something that's real. Now, don't overthink it here, but it's like this. We believe and we, and we know and we recognize that all sorts of things are true. Right? But for it to be real, for us to feel it firsthand and to live aware of it, or to be consciously mindful of it to the extent that it shapes the way I view everything, that's much different. When Alyssa was pregnant with our first child, the line on that pregnancy test told me, this is true. And I believed it. Yeah, it was true. But it wasn't quite real to me yet. Even the next day when I saw him as a little blob on that ultrasound screen, I believed that's, that's, that's true, but it still didn't feel real. And it wasn't until time it came on or went on that I could actually feel him kicking that the reality began to set in. And it moved from becoming just simply a truth that I affirmed to now becoming real. Wow, I'm a dad. A lived reality that changed everything. The resurrection of Jesus is true. The resurrection of Jesus is one of the most core Christian beliefs that we, that we confess. It is a source of our hope. To confess Christ rightly is also to confess him as risen for us. But is it real? Does it so thoroughly affect our cognitions and our perceptions that the way we look at life, the way we look at all of our experiences are through the reality of the resurrection? If we do, it will change everything about how we view the world. We'll see pain and suffering as very real things. But just as real as a resurrected Jesus in glory who has already begun to recreate the world. We'll look at the darkness that still resides in life and we'll be able to understand in all moments that this too will pass. There are times for weeping, but not for long. Jesus has already begun the age where he will wipe away all of our tears. We have his words there, why are you weeping? But we also have the next words that come right after that in verse 15. Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Now, Jesus knows the answer. It's obvious to us all when we read it. Mary's looking for Jesus. But like so many of Jesus' questions, he intends them to be a moment of reflection. She's seeking Jesus. But who, though, is the Jesus that she is expecting to find? What was she anticipating on finding? Was she expecting to find a dead Jesus wrapped up but taken away somewhere else? Because her weeping and response back to Jesus reflects an assumption that he's still dead, despite what her surroundings are telling her. Jesus isn't being cruel or he's not playing with her He's getting her to genuinely reflect upon what she sees in order then to draw her out of unbelief and into the joy of his resurrection. 
He wants her to share in that hope that he offers. And his question then is a way of gently leading her into it. Jesus doesn't want you to be lost in the dark about who he is. He wants you to know him rightly so that you too can experience the freedom and the joy that are in him. What sort of savior are you seeking? Does he solve only my physical problems? Does he only take care of my spiritual issues and my inabilities? Jesus is a savior, though, that goes far beyond merely one of these. Jesus brings a salvation that's holistic. It's not only for the whole person, both body and soul, but also that affects the whole world, the whole order of things. When he rises on the first day to usher in a new era unlike any before, he is the first fruits of the renewal of all things. The first fruits are the beginning of the harvest. Right? It signals the time is ripe. There's a whole lot more that's, that's to come. And as Jesus stands raised before Mary, as Jesus stands still before us, he is telling us then to look at him in his glory. Because he's the first fruit, and there's still so much more that's, uh, that's in for the whole world. He brings peace. He brings shalom, the peace and order and settledness that will come when all things are put together as they're intended. A peace of our physical selves united perfectly with the peace of our spiritual selves. And all of those connected to the peace of society, all that connected with a peace with God. Because the very thing which interrupted that peace that we had with God, the peace that first uh, uh, God blessed the earth with, the sin and the fall that interrupted everything there, that was put to death with Jesus on the cross. And there's a sense where we probably don't fully get this renewal of all things. Because even the best experiences that we have in life are still tainted with our own fallenness. Or it seems too strange, like it's just some big cosmic idea. That's okay though. Because we can't settle for a savior who renews things in context that we can fully understand or that we can fully understand or, or comprehend. We ought to be seeking instead a savior who enlarges our understanding of salvation. That the world is more broken and sinful than we can really get. But that just means though that Jesus is more beautiful and he's more multifaceted of a savior and that he does his work far more and far deeper than we could even hope. The third words of Jesus here that he says that we're going to look at is in verse 16. It's just simply this. Mary. Mary calling out to her. Here is her hope standing before her. Here's the one that she's been seeking this whole time, but yet she doesn't quite yet recognize Jesus. Now, some have said that maybe it's because her eyes are so filled with tears and, and they're blurry and she can't recognize him. Others have suggested maybe it's because it was the early morning darkness and the lighting was bad. But I don't think that any of those actually do proper justice to the theme that was introduced at the beginning of this passage. In a way, it does have to do with darkness, but not the literal darkness. It's her darkened understanding which still hangs over her vision. She's seen the evidence around her. She's seen the risen Lord. He's addressed her in a way to lead her to understanding, but she just can't understand for whatever reason it is here. Maybe she's slow in putting the pieces together. I don't know. Maybe, maybe everything in her mind is still questioning this, but this is the moment, though, where everything shifts for her. 
And Jesus just calls out to her in a simple way. Mary. And then the darkness suddenly lifts. There's understanding and there's recognition. She's not wrestling with with unbelief anymore. The renewal of the universe, this big truth, everything about what Jesus has done, now it becomes personal for her. It's not just some grand idea. It's not just a bunch of fancy theological phrases to be tossed around. It's something that applies to her just the same. It's something that has drawn her in. And there's something about his word. There's something about the gentle power in his voice that overcomes her despair and her clouded understanding to finally recognize him and to believe. I said before about how John likes to weave all these threads throughout his gospel and then bring them all together in the end. In John 10, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. And as the shepherd, he knows all his sheep by their own individual names. It's not just, that's my flock right there. Those are my sheep. It's also, there's Daphne, there's Barry, you know, on and on, whoever it is, right? But here's the idea, though, too. Here's the thing. Sheep know the voice of their shepherd also. Shepherds don't just know the, the, the names of their sheep, The sheep also know the voice of their shepherd, that distinct call that they have. You know, they go, hey, sheep, whatever it is, right? That's that's what they do. Um, But then they respond. They know that voice. They know that specific call. They won't respond to just any call or the voice of anyone. They know that particular voice, and they follow. Jesus knows this lone sheep, He knows Mary, and he calls to her gently, and she recognizes and knows the voice of her shepherd. He calls her lovingly, just this gentle Mary. It's not harsh. He doesn't say, isn't it obvious? Hello? Of course, it's me. Look at the tomb, huh? No, he just says, Mary. If you're struggling with believing who Jesus is in your circumstances, he is gently calling to you to look to him in his resurrected form. He doesn't shame. He calls you because he wants you to hear his voice and to recognize him as the one who overcame the darkness. As it says in John 1, Jesus is the word of God speaking into the darkness and bringing forth light and life to those who will believe. But Jesus, as the word, is doing the same thing that he's always done all along. Speaking life and light and order out of darkness and chaos. Because he was there at creation. He was not only the word of God being spoken into the nothingness, but he was God himself speaking. And his voice, his word, brings us clarity in moments of darkness and confusion. We need to hear him most in those moments. Darkness is powerful. Jesus has overcome the darkness, but that still doesn't mean that it's neutered of all of its power or it's powerless. It still has its effects. But the word of Jesus, though, is more powerful than any cloud of despair or of any storm that might grip us. The word of Jesus is capable of taming the void and bringing order to the chaos at creation, and it's able to do the same thing still today. His word brings clarity to us. It allows us to think clearly. We can begin to see things as they are, that they are horribly broken, but we're also then able to recognize that resurrection has broken into the world. 
And then the last phrase that Jesus says here, verse 17, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary finally recognizes Jesus. Just days before, she saw him cruelly beaten and nailed to a cross where he had died. But now the impossible seems to have happened. Her master's alive. And so what she does then is, is to be pretty expected. She falls to her knees and clutches his feet. But not in disbelief, in amazement, and in worship. And it seems that Jesus' words are a little odd then. Don't, don't cling to me. Because it seems like that should be the most natural thing. Yes, I'm the Lord of life. I've conquered death. I'm the risen son of God. Of course, worship and bow down before me. I am the supreme object of your adoration and hope. So why does he say these words? Don't cling to me. He's commissioning her to a task. He says, this is an important day. And there's work to be done. I want you to go tell my disciples everything that you've seen. Jesus' words aren't of rejection. Jesus' words are commission. This woman here is the first eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. It's not Peter. It's not John here. And he gives her the very important job then of going forth as his herald to announce his triumph. And he says, oh, and there's one more thing. Make sure you tell them that I'm ascending to the Father. I haven't ascended yet, but I will soon. So go tell them the news. Tell them because... For as wonderful as this has all been about me being alive, it's about to get way better. Essentially, Jesus is telling them, but wait, there's more. I don't know if these, I don't know if these, these are a thing anymore because everyone watches TV on their own devices. But before, you know, there's those infomercials where there's the overly enthusiastic salesman and he tries to convince you of how great this product was and why you should buy it. And just in case you're wavering a little bit, I don't know, then he always comes in with that ace up his sleeve. But wait, there's more. And he sweetens the deal. You see how amazing it, this product is, why you can't possibly live without it. And so you grab your credit card and you pay two easy installments of $29.99. Right? But if Jesus' resurrection isn't enough, but wait, there's more. He's going to ascend to the Father. Why is that so good? Well, for one thing, he's already told his disciples that he was going to ascend. And when he ascends, he's going to send them the Spirit. John 15 and 16, he says he might be absent in his body, but he will be present in the Spirit. And that is Spirit with a capital S. He is going to be with them in a way that is far better and frankly unimaginable if he doesn't ascend and he instead stays with them. If Jesus doesn't ascend, there is no spirit to lead his disciples deeper into the truth. There's no spirit to open up the mind of God to them. No ascension means no intimate presence of the spirit of God dwelling with them, never to leave or to depart. No ascension means no further witness to Jesus as his disciples would be powerless in the face of this task that they're given. No, it's good that Jesus was about to ascend. But note also his words, there's, there's also a shared sense of identity. Go to my brothers. I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. 
He is speaking in a way that reveals a new relationship with Jesus, the Father, and his people. It's familial. And as he's going away to the Father, then he's going to prepare a place for them in the Father's mansion. Big Brother's going to go get the rooms ready for his younger siblings. The resurrection is an incredible triumph of God. It is wonderful that Jesus is alive and worthy of celebration, but the ascension makes everything better. Does Mary believe that? She's been through so many traumatic experiences. In her joy and confusion, does she really believe that it'll be better that Jesus ascends? I don't know. But let's turn that on us. Do we really believe that it's better that he's gone right now? People often say, well, if I could just see Jesus, then I would believe. Or everything would be okay if he was with me in bodily form right now. But is that really true? Because that's not what Jesus says. The answer to our unbelief isn't to continue to question what he says. The answer to our unbelief and our struggles is to press in with faith to what he says. And that includes his words when he says that it's better for him to be away right now. Because without Jesus ascended, we miss out on so much. We miss out on the spirit being alive and present with us in our weaknesses. We miss out on Jesus and at the Father's right hand interceding for us and continuing to plead his blood on our behalf. We miss out on our place being held with him in the new creation that Jesus himself has already entered into. So this is a matter of belief for us too. Once again, who is the Jesus that we're seeking? Is it a Jesus who satisfies our needs as we want? Or someone who does something so much better for us, even though it might seem to us to be a little inconvenient? In this whole encounter, Jesus doesn't want Mary to persist in her unbelief. She comes with darkness clouding her eyes, and he allows her to wrestle. But her struggling with doubt, though, isn't the end goal of this whole thing. It's okay to do so. Often God grows us in our faith and our longing for him most when we find ourselves at the edges, when we find ourselves on the fringes and seemingly distant from him. Wrestling and struggling faith with faith is one thing. But re- endless wrestling, though, gets us nowhere. The journey is fruitless if we don't arrive at the destination of faith. But Jesus brings Mary to a place where she can finally recognize and finally believe that Jesus really is raised from the dead. That he really has triumphed over death and despair and he will continue then to be present despite his absence. And like he does with Mary, he calls out to you too. Listen to his words. Allow him to change your unbelief so that you might better see him and know him and trust him in the difficult moments of darkness. Let's pray. Lord God, we need to see this resurrected Jesus. We want to see this resurrected Jesus. He is our hope. We have nothing apart from him. If Jesus is not resurrected, then darkness is the status quo. Darkness is for all of us. But we thank you so much for the resurrection, that it is true. Please make it more and more real to us. All of us in, in some way live in a, 
a way of functional unbelief where, where we don't recognize the truth of the resurrection and how it, how it bears upon us at all times. Some of us, <laughs> all of us um, fail in those ways. But Lord, I pray specifically though for those in this moment here who are in the midst of thick darkness where the clouds are hanging dark over them and where their vision of you is obscured. Father, with the words of Jesus, go forth into the darkness and dispel that which is upon them by his light so that they might know the, the goodness, the victory, and the triumph of Jesus for them even in that moment. Now, we pray that you would lead us in hope as we come to the table, as we not only remember, but also receive the, the signs and seals of the crucified and risen and ascended Jesus for us. Prepare our hearts for that in his name. Amen.